Well, uh, first, let me just pray. How about that? That's a fitting starting point. Amen. Father, we love you so much, and we are privileged, truly grateful to be able to gather together as the body of Christ, as the church, and to worship you in song and to sit under the teaching of your word. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified here today, that Christ would be exalted and that uh, the Holy Spirit would move mightily in here, and that you would speak to our hearts, and that we would be stirred up to love and good works through your word. And so we thank you, Father, for what you're going to be doing today and in this coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Pastor Dan, I don't know if you're able to tweak on the sound at all, but it uh, sounds like it's right on the cusp of going sideways up here. So, all right. Hopefully that won't be too much of a distraction. All right, so I've been away for several weeks now, as most of you, if not all of you, uh, have noticed, and I have missed you guys dearly. I've really missed you. I've missed this church. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, three years in as the senior pastor, but I've been pastoring for quite a while in different contexts, and I have a just a bad pattern or habit of... Uh, just roll until the wheels fall off. I don't know how many of you in here can relate with that in, uh, in life, just burning the candle at both ends, and I'm coming to realize that I just cannot function that way, right? None of us can. God didn't design us to function that way, and maybe that's something I'll talk about at some point in the near future, kind of what, I, what the Lord has shown me in my time off. Uh, but, you know, traditionally I'll kind of see the signs coming when I'm kind of going too hard, too far, and usually all I have to do is manipulate my schedule a little bit, catch, my, catch a second breath, and I'm kind of good to go, but just didn't go that way this time. I finally kind of hit a wall where I thought, man, I've really got to get away and refill my tank, and so I appreciate your guys' uh, patience and graciousness and um, allowing me to get away, and I'm so grateful for the, uh, the volunteers, I'm so grateful for the pastors here, Pastor Dan, who has faithfully filled this pulpit week after week, and uh, allowing me to get away and just know that everything's going to run well, and that uh, the people will continue to be fed here faithfully, and so, uh, you know, just love you guys very much, and I'm glad to be back. Amen? Cool. So, with that, as I've been away, I've had a lot of time to think. And this might come as a surprise to you, but I've been thinking a lot about the church, right? And so that's just kind of the way it is for the pastor. You think about the church a lot. And so I've been thinking about uh, this coming year, and you know, I'm excited about this coming year. I just have a sense that the Lord is doing some cool things. There's a lot to be encouraged about, and I believe that the Lord is going to do a lot of cool things this year. And so it seemed fitting to me that we would just kind of recalibrate, think deeply about what is the church. What is the church? Because I want us to give to the church uh, what is required of us, and I want us to get from the church everything that we can. I want us to experience the full blessing of what God has for us through the local church, right? And so I wanted to take a few weeks to just talk about the church. What is the church? What does Jesus think about his church? Who leads the church? What does the church do, right? <clears throat> And a, a fancy word for that might be called ecclesiology. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but it simply means the, the church, the function of the church. What is the nature of it? What does the church do? And I, and I want to just unpack that in the coming weeks. And so that's something I've been thinking quite a bit about. And today, I thought it would be a fitting start to ask the question, what does Jesus think about the church? It's his church, Right? And so, how does Jesus feel about it? What does the Word of God say about the church? And in some ways, this connects back to a sermon you guys heard about four weeks ago. Pastor Jess Arns from Grace Church, <clears throat> he came and he taught here. And uh, he kind of changed directions as he stepped up into the pulpit. That's kind of a, that's always a trip when that happens. I had something to say, but as I was coming up the steps, I changed my mind. It's like, okay. And so that was uh, the direction he went. He asked the question, is your church essential? Do you remember that? He asked the question, is your church essential? And he said that uh, ultimately the church is very essential to Jesus. And that's really the question, is how does Jesus feel? Is 
is the church essential to Jesus? And so I'm going to kind of pick up with that same thing and kind of launch off this series talking about that same idea. And I want to kind of walk through the scriptures a little bit to answer that question. So needless to say, there's a lot of cynicism in the world about the church, right? And there's a lot of cynicism even within the church oftentimes. And I've heard it said cynically about the church that the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. That's kind of cute, and, you know, that's clever, I get that, but that's sad, and that's, that's awful, really, and that is, not, that is not how Jesus feels about the church. That's not how Jesus sees the church at all. That's certainly not been my experience, and I've been blessed to fellowship in many different churches over the years, and I've been nothing less than blessed through the church of Jesus Christ. I would say to you that Jesus treasures the church. The church is a treasure to Jesus. There's this interesting verse in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It's one verse. It's one little parable that Jesus gives, and he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. That's a fascinating little verse. This man finds treasure in a field, gets excited about it, goes and sells everything so he can buy the field so he can have what's inside of it. Now, most people, many people that I've heard talk about this verse over the years have understood this to mean salvation. We come to the, the, the realization of who Christ is. It's a mystery. It's hidden. But to whom it is revealed, they're so grateful for what they have discovered, they're willing to forsake everything to have it. And that makes sense. I could see how you could interpret it that way, and it very well could be. But I've also heard it interpreted a different way. And the, the field is the world, and there's something in the world that is so precious to Jesus that Jesus was willing to pay the highest price to get what was inside that field, and that would be the church. At least that was Charles Spurgeon's understanding of it, the great prince of preachers uh, commenting on this verse. He said, So did Jesus himself at the utmost cost buy the world to gain his church, which was the treasure which he desired. Now that's beautiful to me. Jesus so loved the church, and he was willing to do whatever it took to pay the highest price to give himself away to give his life so that he could save those people who would be called the church. So regardless of how you understand that verse there in Matthew 13, the scriptures are crystal clear about the importance of the church to Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at some different passages because if the church is so special to Jesus, it ought to be to us, right? And that, that, I want to stir you guys up to love and good works. I want you to love and appreciate the church like I do, the love that Jesus has given me for his church. I want us collectively to love the church like Jesus loves the church. Amen? Besides salvation, I believe it's the greatest gift that Jesus has given us, each other, the church. And so in the coming weeks, I'll talk more about what the church is. I want to say a lot of things about it, but today I just want to start with how special the church is to Jesus and what Jesus has to say about his church and what Jesus expects of his church. So with that, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair somewhere nearby. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, we'll pick up in verse 13. First point I would make here is that Jesus said he was going to build a church. Jesus said he was going to build his church. He is the sovereign architect, if you will. Jesus is the one building the building. Amen? And so it says... In verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
So they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is to say, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, what a verse. So there was much confusion in those days about who Jesus is. Not much has changed. There's still a lot of confusion in our day. And so Jesus asked, hey, who do people say that I am? And they start naming off different people. Some people say you're the prophet or you're Jeremiah, so on and so forth. Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. Peter got it right. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus let Peter know that the only reason he knew that is because of God's gracious revelation to him. You could not have known that otherwise because God... And his sovereignty revealed that to you. It was a gift of grace from the Father. And then Jesus makes this very fascinating statement. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, many people have understood this verse to mean that Peter is the foundation of the church. God help us if Peter was the foundation of the church, right? And so that is obviously not what is being said here. Now, it's kind of an interesting play on words. The, word, uh, the name Peter, it means stone or rock. It's a, a pebble, if you will. And so Jesus says, you are a stone, you're a pebble, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, the rock that Jesus is talking about is a massive boulder. It's a it's a bedrock. And so what, what's he talking about here? What is the rock that Jesus is actually referring to? It's the statement that Peter just made, the truth of who Jesus is and his accomplishments. That would be the foundation upon which the church would be built, not upon Peter. Jesus says, Peter, you're a little rock, but there's this massive boulder upon which my church will be built. And it is the truth of that statement that just came out of your mouth. That I am the Christ. I'm the sent one of God. I am the son of the living God. Right? And so, interestingly enough, that's the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. It's the first mention of the word. That's kind of important. It's a big deal. And it comes from none other than Jesus himself. Undoubtedly, the disciples at this point are like, what in the world is a church? We take that for granted. Right? What in the world is a church? And so we're going to really unpack that in the coming weeks, but I don't want to go too deep into that today, except to say, I'll talk about what a church is not a little bit and what a church is. First off, the, the word church, it, it's ekklesia in the Greek, and, and what it simply means is called out ones. So it's people who have been called out of the world and called into this family of believers, this entity called the church. So it, it's not a building. You understand that. The church is not a building. And it's unfortunate because we refer to the church as, you know, the building as a church. We're, we're going to church today. And it's really a matter of convenience um, because it's, it's a little more complicated to say we're going to the building where the church meets at. Right? And so it's just easier to say the church. And so we do. But um, when this building sits empty during the week, this is not church. It's not church. It's church when we gather together in one, as one family in Christ. That's when church is happening. That's when the church is present. Does that make sense? And so there's something very special about the gathering together of the saints. That is church. So they are called out. They are set apart people. And so there's really two aspects to the church. There is what is called the universal church. And that is all believers at all times. So we've got brothers and sisters who have gone before us who are in heaven right now. We have brothers and sisters all around the world, many of whom are suffering right now for the, for the cause of Christ. But we collectively are the church, the universal church, right? 
And the moment that you are born again, the, more, the moment that you're saved, you are baptized into the universal church. We're all members of that. But then there's the local church. There are the local expressions of the universal church. And that, this would be one local assembly right here. This would be one unique little body, if you will. And there are many in Napa, many around the world, but we are our own little unique body of believers right here, Calvary Napa. And much of what I'm going to be talking about today and in the coming weeks is dealing specifically with the local church, all right? And if I need to make the distinction between the two, I will, but that's basically the idea. Are you tracking with me? Does this all make sense to you? All right. Jesus said he was going to build his church. He is building his church, and he's also building his church through many different local churches all around the world throughout every generation. It's not just any kind of people. It's a holy people, and by holy I mean different, distinct, set apart, hence the word called out ones. This is a people who would glorify Jesus for who he is, his identity, and for his accomplishments, what he has done. That's what the church gathers to do. And I will just say that is what the Holy Spirit has come to do. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes... He's going to take what is mine and he's going to declare it to you. That is one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to make a big deal about Jesus, to point people to Jesus, to help us understand more about Jesus. Did you know that? And so I would say to you that a church that is filled with the Spirit is a Christ-centered church. A church where the Spirit is moving mightily is a church that's going to make a big deal about Jesus Christ. Amen? Because that's what the Holy Spirit came to do, to point people to Jesus. And that's what the church gathers to do, is to exalt Christ. That's why we gather on the first day of the week. We gather to celebrate the resurrection. We gather to worship Jesus in one voice. And so we'll, obviously, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to talk more about that. But that is the church, and Jesus said he was going to build this church. Which brings us to our next point, second point. Jesus paid a very high price to build this church. Jesus paid the highest price. I'll just read these verses to you. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is talking to the pastors from the Ephesian church, and he gives them this command. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, that's the church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the church of God, which was purchased with what? The blood of Jesus. Purchased by the blood of Jesus. That is a high price to be paid. Amen? Salvation is a free gift of God, but it didn't come cheap. It came at a very high price. It cost Jesus his life. He shed his blood on Calvary's cross for his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, speaking to the husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives. And then he gives this example. This is the kind of love that husbands are to love their wives with, no pressure at all. He says, Just as Christ also loved the church. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself for his bride. He goes on in verse 26 to say that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. See, Jesus loves his church. Jesus died to purchase this church. And Jesus is going to present the church, the bride, to his father in radiant and glorious splendor. Jesus loves his church. You see, the Bible says, the Bible describes us outside of Christ like this. The Bible says that we were slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. It says that we were dead and trespass and sin. The Bible says that we were blind, that we were rebels, that we were children of Satan and children of wrath. 
that's pretty, that's pretty rough, isn't it? I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's about as bad as it gets. That's, that's, that's about as helpless and hopeless as you can possibly be, if that describes you, right? We had to be redeemed out of that, and there was nothing that we could do about it for ourselves. How can a dead, blind rebel who is in bondage to Satan and uh, sin rescue themselves? Have you ever thought about that? How in the world can you rescue yourself out of that situation? You can't. We can't. We had to be rescued. We had to be redeemed. We had to be bought back, as it were, from our imprisonment, from our enslavement. It was a hopeless condition. We truly were in a horrible pit. But Jesus lifted us up out of that pit. Amen? He set our feet upon the rock. It was only through the blood of Jesus that that could happen, that such a price could be paid to set us free because he was the perfect and holy lamb of God. He was the son of God. He is the son of God who lived a life in perfect obedience, a life that we could never live, ever live. Not for one day, not on our best day could we measure up, but Jesus measured up perfectly. And then he laid down his life freely to take the penalty that we deserved, the righteous and just penalty that God had to lay upon us in justice. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. He said it was finished there on the cross. He did all that was necessary for salvation, and then he rose again from the grave. Three days later, victory. Amen? Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory, freedom to the captives. Freedom to the captives. You see, when you have been set free from sin, when you have been brought from death into life, that came at a very high price. There was a very high price that was paid to make that happen for you. And it was the shedding of Jesus' blood there on the cross. It was his death, his substitutionary death and his resurrection on our behalf. You think Jesus cares about the church? You think Jesus cares about the church? He died for her. He shed his blood for her. And as such, this brings me to the next point, Jesus wants a holy church. Jesus has expectations for his church. Jesus wants us to be different. He wants us to be a peculiar people. He wants us to be a pure church. Matthew chapter 18, why don't you flip there? If your Bible's still open, it's just a couple, couple chapters over. Matthew 18. This is a, a pretty common passage. I think we, we all know it pretty well. Jesus is uh, laying out steps for confrontation. If, uh, if someone is in sin in the church, if someone has sinned against you, the way in which we're supposed to go about handling that, offenses and such. And so he says in verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that's where it starts. If someone sins against you, you go to him. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's the best case scenario. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Those are strong words, I will admit. I admit. Sometimes like, Jesus, man, calm down. Settle down just a little bit, all right? But uh, this is the second mention of the church in the New Testament. Second mention. And by none other than Jesus himself. And what this tells me is that Jesus is serious about a holy church. He wants a pure church. Again, by this point, maybe the disciples are still wondering what in the world is a church. I don't know. Maybe he's clarified that to them a little bit by now. But, you know, I've seen this before. I've seen what is called church discipline happen, where someone in the church is in some kind of heinous sin. Say a guy is uh, abusing his wife, and, 
and, you know, runs out on the family and leaves his kids. And there had been multiple steps taken to try to come to this guy and snap him out, you know, get him, snap out of it and repent and, and turn back to the Lord and, and you know, uh, commit to your family as you ought and love them and, and serve them and so on. And, and after many steps are taken, they just won't do it. They refuse. And so the elders get up in front of the church in obedience to this and other passages in the New Testament and tell the church what has happened. And the person is put out of the church and the church is told to pray fervently for these folks. And there's something that happens. It's, it's biblical. It's spiritual. And uh, under the, the weight of that, I've seen people just repent and publicly come up in front of the church and acknowledge their sin, and then the church forgives them, and they're restored to their family, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing to behold. It's a very weighty and powerful thing. It doesn't always go that way, but it's a real thing, and it's something that Jesus established for his church because Jesus wants a pure church. He wants a church that takes seriously living and looking like the church's Savior. Amen? And so we want to take holiness seriously. We want to be obedient to the command of Jesus to be distinct. You know, it's, it's always been this way. It's always, this has always been God's heart for God's people to be different. You know, the world says that bad is good, right? Does it not? We know this. And so we're supposed to be different than the world. And it's always been that way. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says that uh, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. That seems rather odd. This was cult practices. This is what other religions would do. They would cut themselves. We, we saw in Elijah on, uh, on Mount uh, Carmel, Carmel, however you say it, and they were trying to call down uh, Baal, remember? Uh, Elijah had this little contest with the prophets of Baal, and what did they start doing? They started cutting themselves. And so this was a cult practice, and shaving the front of their heads for, for you know, the dead. It's just a distracting thing to even picture in your head, you know, but um, God said, you're not going to do that, okay? You're not going to look like all these other folks, all these other religions. You're going to be a holy people. You're going to be different, to the Lord your God, for the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's people, they are a special treasure to him, and his people are to be different. They're to be distinct. They're not to be like the world. Now, in the New Testament, Peter picks up on this and builds upon it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, "...but you are a chosen generation." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. That's us. We were once not a people but we now are. There was a time this didn't exist. This body of believers wasn't here. Look at what God has done. This is God's doing. This is a, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is because of what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Here we are today, celebrating and worshiping Jesus, reading the Word together, giving God glory. Amen? And so we're to be a holy people, distinct. We're supposed to look, look a lot like our Savior, act and talk and walk like Him. And that's diametrically opposed to the values of this world and what the world says is right and good. And so we've got to fight for that, amen? I want us to be a church where we call sin, sin, where we stand upon the truth, where we walk in the light, where we don't apologize for Jesus or what the Bible says. Obviously, we do it in a spirit of grace and love and compassion, right? But the truth is the truth, and we have to stand for something, right? Or as that old country song goes, we'll fall for anything, right? Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. That's all right. It's okay. Jesus wants a holy people. He's building a church. He paid a very high price to purchase that church, and he expects that church to maintain holiness. Brings us to our next point. Jesus identifies very closely with his church, very closely. 
I'll explain what I mean. In Acts chapter 9, we know the story of uh, Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul. Well, before he became the great missionary to the church, he was a persecutor of the church, right? He was a Pharisee. He was a zealous man. He hated Christ. And we know the story as he was on the Damascus Road, uh, verse 3 of chapter 9, it says that suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, we don't have any record of Saul persecuting Jesus directly, but I would submit to you that Jesus is saying that what you do to my church, you've done that to me. What you do to my church, you have done that to me. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It was something that he could never quite get over, the fact that he did that. He persecuted the church of God the church of Jesus, and Jesus said, you've persecuted me. That's an amazing thing to think. Um, again, in Matthew chapter 25, now I know we know this text really well. There's this uh, story, Jesus says that the king is going to come to these people, and he's going to say, you know, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. You remember that text? You remember that? That's what, in Matthew 25, 37, it says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to what? Me. You did it to me. Now, usually people take that verse and kind of make it very generic, and it's like any, any act of kindness that we do anywhere in the world, we're doing it for Jesus. But actually, I think it's something much more specific here. D.A. Carson, he's a, he's a contemporary uh, theologian, and man, the guy is highly trusted and uh, a beloved brother in our day and age. He has put forth that this is actually talking about Christians. It's looking to a time when Christians were going to be suffering greatly. They're going to be suffering greatly, and they're going to be persecuted for their faith. And they're going to be starving. They're going to be thirsty. They're going to be imprisoned because of it. And when you care for a Christian in that state, you're caring for Jesus. Jesus said, when you did it to one of these, when you fed and clothed and visited someone in prison, one of my followers, you've done it for me. That makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you? And so... I think that this all ties together, and what we see here is that Jesus identifies very closely with his people, and that is a comforting thought. Are you going through something painful right now? Are you struggling? Are you being mistreated? Are you being falsely accused? Are you hurting? Are you suffering? What are you going through? You know what? Jesus feels that. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with this church. Whatever is going on with this church, Jesus is with us. Jesus feels it. Amen? Our Savior is near. And that brings me to, really this ties right into the next point, so I don't want to belabor what I'm saying. Not only does Jesus uh, very closely relate to his church, Jesus is in the midst. Jesus is in the midst of his church. Amen? Why don't you turn with me to Revelation? Now, this is a, a passage that Pastor Jess actually taught on, uh, I referenced earlier, about four weeks ago. In chapter 1, we're going to be picking up in verse 12. I don't want to get too crazy on you here, but I just thought this was kind of neat uh, to me over the years as I've considered this. So we know at this, at this point, the Apostle John, he's the last of the disciples, the twelve. The rest of them have died through persecution. We believe that he's an old man at this point. He's been banished to the island of Patmos. It's like a prison camp. 
And it is here that he receives what is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it starts by him actually having this vision of the risen Christ. See, Jesus, he's not in a manger, he's not hanging on a cross, and he's not in a tomb. He's risen and he's glorified. And that is what John sees. And he's not ready for that. He's never seen this. In his mind, at his age, he's so old and so much time has passed, he may not even remember what Jesus looked like earthly so well. But when he sees this Jesus, he falls to the ground as though dead in fear. Well, it says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Then I turned to see, he had heard a voice behind him, and he said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Mark that. Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. He was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. As Jess said, these are like priestly robes, priestly garments. Verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, John's doing the best he can to describe what he's seeing with the language that was most available to him in that day. And he said it was bright, bright, glorious, uh, bright, white light. It was like that. And he said his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice has the sound of many waters, like a roaring ocean. And he had in his right hand seven stars. It's kind of fascinating. We're told here that he is in the midst of seven lampstands, and he holds in his right hand seven stars. Now, what in the world does that mean? Right? Sometimes the Bible tells us. When it uses this kind of language, it will actually tell us what it means. And so in verse 20... Of chapter 1, it tells us, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. All right, now hang in here with me, all right? Hang in here with me. So, the seven angels. The word angel there, it's uh, angelos in the Greek, and it's often translated as or transliterated into angel, but it means messenger. It means messenger. And these appear to be messengers directly connected to churches, so commentators believe this to be the pastors. These are seven particular churches, seven local churches, the churches that Jesus speaks to in chapters 2 and 3, Ephesus, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, Smyrna, Laodicea, right? Those are seven local churches there in Asia Minor at the very time that John is receiving this vision. And these seven angels would probably be the pastor in each and every one of those churches, right? But what I love is the language that Jesus uses. Where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the lampstand. He's in the midst of his churches, that's where Jesus is. He's not standing off from afar, pointing his finger, calling them out, dogging them out. No, he's right there in the midst of his churches. And where are the, the pastors? Right in his hand. And I thank God for that. I mean, if there was ever any place that I wanted to be, that's where I want to be. I mean, to have a task like this, to be an under-shepherd, to be a pastor of one of Jesus' flocks, and hold me closely, Jesus, please. I want to be in your hand. Jesus, I want you to be in our midst, right? If Jesus ain't here, then what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing if Jesus is not here with us? But he is with us, amen? He's right in the midst of his church. Jesus is building the church. He loves his church. He paid a high price for her. Jesus expects holiness in his church. And Jesus is very committed and closely connected with his church. In fact, he's right in the middle, right in the midst. You need to know that. There's something very special about that. When we come together, man, Jesus is in our midst in a very special way. You know, what's cool about the Lord, what's cool about Christianity, is that it's personal. Each and every one of us in here, when we go our own separate ways, God is with us. Amen? And we can worship the Lord in our car, 
in a park, walking down the road, in our home, wherever we may be. The Lord is always with us, and he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. Something very special and unique about Christianity. But there, I would submit to you, is something even more special about when we come together. When we come together as the church of Jesus Christ, that he has brought together in a very special and unique way, a very special and unique time. And Jesus said, there he is in the midst. There he is in the midst. And whatever happens to his church happens to him. Happens to him. Praise Jesus. Praise God for that. What a glorious Savior. Amen? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he to be praised, to be glorified, to be worshipped? Well, I got one last point. We're doing pretty good on time. Pretty good. So I thought I, uh, I didn't know if I was going to hit this last one or not. But uh, we're actually making record timing right now. I'm going to try to keep it that way, all right? I'm going to set a record today. This last point's a little different, but I think it's, uh, it was just one I, I, had to, I had to make. And that is, the church was not God's plan B. God didn't say, oops. I didn't anticipate all of this going sideways, and so what am I going to do? I've got an idea. I'll send my son, and he'll save a bunch of people, and, you know, it'll be better than nothing. A lot of people think that's how, how it went down, and that's what the Bible teaches, but that's, that's simply not it. This has been God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan. It is not a plan B. The church was God's eternal plan. In Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, I'll read this. These are, uh, these are some very dense verses, and so um, I'm just going to kind of read it slowly and try to expand upon it as I go. In verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul says, I am the least of all the Lord's people, yet grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, that is, the non-Jews, that's all the nations, all the peoples of the world, Paul said, I have been given this blessed privilege to preach the boundless riches of Christ. In verse 10, he says, his intent was that now, through the church, I want you to mark that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Verse 11, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul said God gave him the blessed privilege to preach Christ. God's intention was that through the church, the manifold, the, the multifaceted wisdom of God, it's like a diamond as you turn it on different sides and you see the radiance of that diamond uh, shine in the light, the brilliance of it. That's like God's wisdom. It's multifaceted. It's amazing. It's, it will never be exhausted. We will spend all of eternity learning of and glorifying God for His infinite wisdom. And what was a demonstration of God's infinite wisdom? The church. It was through the church that the multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God would be made known. But to who? To the rulers and authorities and heavenly realms. I mean, that boggles the mind. God is going to be glorified in heaven through all eternal creatures and heavenly realms for all of eternity. And this was according to what? His eternal purposes that he accomplished in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 21, to him be glory in the church forever and ever, every generation. I mean, have you ever read that before? I mean, I know we've all read Ephesians probably countless times. Have you ever read that? Has that ever caught your attention? That was God's plan. His eternal purpose was to glorify himself through the church, to put his manifold wisdom on display. And how did he do that? How does, how does God put his wisdom on display, this infinite manifold wisdom? He does it through the cross. He does it through salvation. And I'll read Exodus 34 to give you a little, a little understanding of what I'm getting at. In Exodus 34, verse 5, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that's with Moses, 
and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds good, doesn't it? So far, so good. Well, without even missing a beat, he goes right into by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What? Are we having a little schizophrenia here all of a sudden, a little bipolar? I mean, what is going on? Merciful and kind and gracious and forgiving sin, and, but by no means pardoning sin or clearing the guilty. Well, it's like, well, which is it? How, how does this even work? This is the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of the eternal God. All of this happens at the cross. See, God cannot just pardon and overlook sin because He is a righteous and just judge and justice must be served. Right? It has to be. God cannot just look away. He can't just pass over and excuse sin. He can't do that because He's perfectly holy and just in all His ways. Yet at the same time, He's totally gracious and merciful. He's a God of love. And so at the cross, justice and mercy collide. Sin is paid for. Sin is punished upon His one and only Son. And because of that, grace and mercy is extended to a people who really don't deserve it, us. We didn't deserve that. But such is God's gracious kindness and goodness. It's because of who God is that we enjoy all the blessings that we enjoy. It was never about us. Can we just take a deep breath and thank God that it was never about us? It was always about Him. So we don't have to measure up. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a perfect rule keeper. I know some of us in here strive to be that. But can I tell you, your works ain't working. Okay? And so, praise God that it's always been about His good grace, mercy, and kindness. And we see that at the cross. That is the multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God on display there at the cross. And as a result of that, the Son would be exalted throughout all of eternity. And we see that in Revelation chapter 5. It says, all the, the, the saints and the angels are worshiping Jesus. They say, For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, Blessing and honor and glory and power to Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. Amen? Amen? Folks, the church is where it is at. That is what God is doing in the world. It is the place in which we most fully and effectively experience the blessing of God as we come together to worship God as the body of Christ. When we are assembled here as the body of Christ, as the local church, we sit under the teaching. You sit under the teaching of the pastor that God has called here to shepherd this church. There are a lot of good teachers on YouTube out there, and I'm blessed by many of them, right? And I know that we all are, but they're not the pastor of this church. They're not your pastor. If I may be so bold as to say this, God has called me to be the pastor of this church and the other elders that are here, and God has given us the command, the responsibility to shepherd your souls. And so, though there are many, countless better teachers, undoubtedly, in the world they are not the shepherd that God has called to shepherd your souls. There's something very special that happens here in this context that you ain't going to get on YouTube, friends. All right? And so you need to know that. This is the place where we can praise God collectively with the unique voice that God has created. When all of our voices come together and rise to the heavens as one, we are able to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has sovereignly and uniquely given us for the edification of the body. We all have a part to play, right? We are one body. And if you're not playing your part, then we got a body that's missing some teeth and missing some fingers and missing a kneecap and deaf in one ear, right? I mean, the body's got to play, everybody's got to play a part. 
That's why we got to come together as the body of Christ and do our part. It is the place where we can come together and give to the Lord's work as an act of faith and worship and gratitude. It's a place where we can experience connection, friendship, brotherhood, and sisterhood with true family. Amen? Jesus is building his church. Jesus so loved the church that he died for her. Jesus wants a pure and distinct and holy church. Remember that Jesus identifies very closely with his church. He's very present in the church. And this has always been God's plan. And we're, we get to be a part of it. Isn't that amazing? We get to be a part of it. Can we give God glory for that? Let's pray. Father, we worship you. Your manifold wisdom, multifaceted, the grace of God in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. We worship you because you're holy and you're good. Thank you for the church universal that we are a part of, but thank you for the local church that we are also very much a part of. Praise you. I thank you for Calvary Napa. I thank you for all the folks here today that love you and love each other. I pray a very special blessing upon them, over them. Holy Spirit, would you fill us afresh, strengthen us, give us the love of Christ, give us your power, give us the ability to walk in the light and to be different in the world, to be distinct, to reflect the glories of Christ. I pray your blessing upon this church this coming year. No doubt it will be fraught with challenges that are unforeseen in the present, but you'll be with us. You always have been. You always will. I thank you for every single person in here who collectively makes up Calvary Napa, and I pray a special blessing over them. Strengthen them, O oh Lord. Fill them. Encourage them with goodness. Use them for your glory. Whatever needs or hurts or fears or doubts or failures are present in this room, you know them all. You're intimately acquainted, Jesus. You're in the midst of your church. I pray that you would meet those needs, that you would bring healing, that you would bring satisfaction, that you would bring confidence and clarity, that you would bring victory. And we praise you. It's all to the, the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next Lord's Day.